Isaiah chapter 53 this evening. If I were to ask you, what are the, name three of the most powerful chapters in the Old Testament, what would you say? Um, I would, I mean, it depends, you know, from a pastor's perspective, I would say, well, Genesis 1, and I would say Psalm 23, but there's no way I'd leave out Isaiah 53. Uh, this is, if there were a such thing as super sacred chapters in the Bible, this would be one of them. It is an overwhelming chapter to expound upon. The message tonight, or the consideration, is God's brave love, part one. There is a temptation to take the easy way out for me to just breeze through the 12 verses. But uh, I think it's just too much here to do that. This is the story of the crucifixion of Christ 700 years before it happened. And you would think that the author was standing in front of the cross. That he was witness to the things that the Gospels tell us concerning Jesus. This is also one of the chapters that had Israel paid attention to it, they would have understand why Messiah came to suffer and die. But, of course, many of them could not tolerate a suffering Messiah. They missed the revelation in their own Bibles about the two comings of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, he came as the suffering servant. <clears throat> Psalm 2, he comes as the ruling Messiah. There's other verses and sections in the Old Testament <clears throat> in addition to these two, but these are the two, two very pronounced ones that would take away any excuse as to why I missed that Jesus is the Messiah had I lived in in ancient Israel, when he walked and witnessed the things he did. Now, a brief review of what I covered last session in Isaiah. Up to the 12th century, the rabbis believed that Isaiah 53 applied to the Messiah. But as Christians began to point that out to them, that, hey, Christ, he fulfilled Isaiah 53, and it's nobody else. There's not even a close second second runner, runner-up. It's him. It could be nobody else. Well, after that, they began to change their view on Isaiah 53 being interpreted as referring to a person, the person of Messiah, and they began to um, apply it to Israel, to personify it. Well, it's really the, the nation of Israel. Well, then you look at verse 8 and you say, how could Israel die for the sins of Israel? That's not possible. And who declared that Israel, looking at verse 9, was innocent of sin and therefore suffered unjustly? All the kings and the chronicles are about the, the iniquity of the kings and the people and their idolatry. No, Isaiah wrote about an innocent individual, not a guilty nation. And he made it clear that this individual died for the sins of the guilty so that the guilty might go free. 
Now, there are a lot of those that come along, liberal theologians. Why, why bother? If you're a liberal, why bother with theology? You're going to shape God in whatever image you want him in anyway. You're not going to receive any re- revelation. But they come along and say, well, Daniel could not possibly have written his prophecies before they happened. Too much detail, too accurate. Well, logic would say, but wait a minute. We cannot dispute that Isaiah wrote the 53rd chapter before Christ was born. It was already in circulation. And everybody knows it. You would think they'd say, the logical conclusion is that there is an absolute God who can tell the future, who does tell the future, who fulfills what he prophesied or predicted for a purpose. That would be too easy. That would make too much sense. Uh, But, you know, this is a common habit. This is what Paul is dealing with when we covered Uh, As we're covering Romans 3, he's dealing with people that are otherwise intelligent. But when it comes to the things of God, to the spiritual realm, everything falls apart. The New Testament, of course, comes along and affirms that this is Jesus of Messiah, the only begotten Son. So if you're taking notes, and you're going to review the notes, because there's no point in really taking notes if you're never going to check them. For that, just get the CD. (laughs) But anyway, if you're taking notes and you're going to look back over them, this may be a helpful overview of Isaiah 53. It really begins in chapter 52 at verse 13. We, We covered that last session, that the chapter divisions are not always perfect, and nor would we, it doesn't harm anything. It just means when they divided the chapters centuries later, they didn't get them all as close to being perfect as they could have. Well, anyway, Isaiah 52, verses 13, uh, to the end, really, through 15, and all the way to chapter 53 that we're looking at this evening, verses 2 and 3, we have the sacred substitute. That's a big deal. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, and they realized they were nude, God slew innocent animals to cover their nudity, or their their consciousness of nudity, that was born out of disobedience, of listening to the devil instead of listening to God. And that set the pace for the sacrificial substitute, the sacrificial atonement, the vicarious death of Christ. This is doctrine, this is easy doctrine. It's just big words kind of mess it up sometime. And it's found throughout the Old Testament into the New. Leviticus 16 deals directly with the atonement. And this is what we find in verses, uh, beginning in chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, and then into chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. And then, verses 4 and 6 of Isaiah 53, we not only have the sacred substitute, we have the suffering substitute. And in the English language, this alliteration works wonderfully. Is not forced. He is a sacred substitute. Nobody else could have been the Passover lamb but Christ. And he suffered in our place, the suffering substitute. Verses 7 and 9 give us the submissive substitute. That he didn't fuss. He didn't resist. He could have called legions of angels and ended it all. But he restrained himself in his sovereignty because of love. No other reason. Love. 
love for sinners. And then verses 10 and 12 of Isaiah 53, we have the sovereignty of the substitute, that he is Lord. This wasn't just a servant, another prophet like Isaiah or Ezekiel, one of the others. This is the Son of God. And you pile it all together and you have the sovereign love of God. I don't mean the sovereign love in the same way that Reformed theology would use that word. I disagree with their use of that word, but they don't own the phrase. Sovereign love is a God who is almighty and loves us. He doesn't have to love us. Being sovereign, he can do whatever he wants to do. And if we put ourselves in his place, we'd say, you know what? I'm sovereign, I'm all-powerful. I'm going to ditch the people that are a problem. I know I've practiced that in my life. That guy's a pain in the neck. I'll find somebody else to be a friend with. But God continues to reach out. There is nothing humorous in this 53rd chapter as we know it. It is all glorious concerning the substitutionary work of Christ and the tragedy concerning his rejection. Peter points back at this in his first letter in the first chapter, verses 10 through 12, of, his, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ. I have to stop there. I've got to get out of this verse because I want to teach on it. But here he says that Christ, the Spirit of Christ, was in the Old Testament prophets, attesting to his eternal state. And then, he says, attesting to his suffering. So it's Christ Telling the prophets, I'm coming, I'm going to suffer for sinners. That's what Peter is saying. I'm not going to read the rest of 1 Peter 10 through 12, because we'll be here, there's just so much more here. But uh, you can take it for yourself, and you can see that, man, Peter is giving us commentary on Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53 displays the cost of salvation to God. And the brilliance of prophecy from God. There's no way you can, uh, there's no brilliant author that can write this stuff. It, it has to come from heaven to men. And whatever difficulties may accompany it are part of the processes of defeating a nagging devil who is petty. It is impossible to think of these words in Isaiah 53 as fulfilled by any other human being than the Jesus of Nazareth. So in Luke's gospel, when Christ had risen from the dead after being crucified, before he reveals himself on a larger scale, he comes across two of his followers who were grieved. We thought he was going to deliver us. And he joins them on the road to Emmaus and, and, and just inserts himself, hey, what's up? And how could you know, not know what's going on? And then when it was his turn to talk, Luke tells us what took place, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So we know what happens to a people who have a Bible and don't use it. Israel in the days of Jesus. They had this chapter. 
and many others. Why could they not look at the miracles, the arm of God, and understand this is the one? We don't care how he does it, he's the one. And we're going to worship him. Well, some did that, but it was a minority, a remnant. Another overview of this 53rd chapter is the birth of the servant, verses 1 and 2, and I can't wait to get to that. The life and ministry of the servant, in verse 3, I repeat, the substitutionary death, verses 4 through 9, that should have been me on the cross. I should pay for my filth, not him. That's why we love him. We sing songs of praise to him. This is why we weep sometimes when we pray. And so when theologians, and some theologians are good, many of them are not. But when they speak about the vicarious atonement, this is what they mean. Isaiah 53. And vicarious in the place of another. Lord, please send us believers so we can share these things with. Wouldn't you love to have a chance to share Isaiah 53 with an unbeliever? That's what Philip had with the Ethiopian eunuch. Who does this man speak of, himself or someone else? And beginning at this scripture, Philip expounded to him the scriptures and what happened. The Ethiopian was baptized. On his initiation, here is water, what stops me from being baptized? So we have this vicarious death, but verses 10 and 12 give us the victorious resurrection. Again, the alliteration is marvelous in the English. I don't know what you do with French or Spanish if it works this way, but in the English you have V for vicarious death and then V for victorious resurrection. And it's accurate, there's no strain to make that happen. And all of it connecting remarkably in the New Testament events and teachings. You have the teachings, but you have the events to back up the teachings. Now we look at the first verse. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Report is a very accurate, accurately translated word. But doctrine would have been just as accurate had the translators decided who has believed our doctrine? It would, have been, it would have been right. Our belief system, our teaching on this. And so Isaiah indicates that he is about to deliver a detailed message that is unworldly. Thus it's beginning, it's introduction. Who's going to believe this? It's so remarkable. And as a nation, they repeatedly refuse to believe the messages proclaimed to them by anointed prophets who preached with such authority that we look back over the thousands of years and say, man, how did those guys know to say those things? With such confidence and faith. For them, their message was the substance of things hoped for. It was God. Now, he says, who has believed our report? Well, that refers to all the faithful Prophets, all the faithful who preach God's word over the centuries. In Isaiah's day, it would have really been Micah. Micah's the one to say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Who believed that? Because he was born in Bethlehem and they didn't believe it. Search the scriptures, see if anything. I mean, come on. Their own Bibles were mute to them because they decided they were immune to its teachings. 
Well, John, the apostle, interprets this verse uh, by the rejection of Jesus Christ. Look, listen, John chapter 12, verse 37. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John says, how, can, how could they miss this? They had their Bibles. Today we have churches that have Bibles and don't use them. Though they have the gospel message and that might be it. And they think on the strength of knowing the gospel message that therefore somehow they're closer to God. Now they may be saved or not. But why would you bury the word of God? There's so much to give us. Someone asked me, how long does it take to prepare for like a wedding or a funeral? At least five hours, at least, for maybe a ten-minute sharing. You go over your facts to find out, God, is this me or is it you? This is a lot of hard work. All Christianity is should be hard work, whether you are a pastor in the pulpit or you are a person in the pew. Christianity has got blood on it and sweat too, or else it's not going to yield much. So, Isaiah, as with most messengers of God, spoke, and as we speak, to often um, inattentive people. There are people that didn't care what he had to say. There are people that don't care what we have to say. Or, if attentive, if they're listening, as in Isaiah's day, to this day, there are those who ridicule and refuse to conform to the message. Paul, likewise, 20 years after the crucifixion resurrection, quotes this section of Isaiah 2. He too is dealing with people that aren't listening or are listening but don't care to comply with what is inescapably the truth. And so in Romans 10, he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Prior to that, Paul was saying, we got to send preachers out, or else how are they going to believe? It's not magic. The word has to be spoken and opened up. If Jesus felt that it was necessary to expound on the scriptures of himself, we must feel that way. Don't you know it's a scene in homes, you have a Christian home, parents love teaching their children Bible things, and that's how it should be. What's the alternative? Unacceptable. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the arm of the Lord are his miracles in actions, in action, his strength. And it's not always self-evident. In fact, most of the time it's not. God's message must be revealed and opened up. Well, if you're a Jew in the ancient Israel and you had a Bible and you were familiar with it, you would know that the heavens declare his glory. But what else? Is that it? Okay, I see he's creative. He's powerful. What does that have to do with me other than it scares me? And no, that's why we have the prophets. That's why we have the stories. You want to see the patience of God in, in the story of Moses before Pharaoh? The patience of God with those Jews in the wilderness. The patience of God with the church. Easily prove. How many Sapphire and Ananiases do we see today? None. He's not going around striking people dead. Love suffers long. Is patient. Love never fails. Not agape love. 
So those who reject the Messiah because of his cross are those who are detached from their scripture. They actually said he deserves to die. He's a blasphemer. Because there was nothing he could say. There was nothing he could do that would sway them away from disliking him. And why is that? Because he was no respective persons. He couldn't flash credentials. Do you know who I am, Jesus? I don't care who you are. He could have said, do you know who I am? Watch this. But that's not how he handled them. They disliked the revelation of his self-imposed humanity and his restraints on his sovereignty. They wanted him to beat the Romans up and anybody else that was Gentile. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The Greeks, they can't understand a king who allows himself to get crucified. And the Jews, they, they, they decided they could not accept a Messiah who was crucified when their own scriptures told them so, as I mentioned, uh, like in Psalm 2. Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, in that order. Not in that, Isaiah 53, of course, deals with the suffering and 2 with the victories. The cross would never have... <clears throat> The cross of Christ would never have been had not Jesus overruled his sovereignty with love. If he just simply applied his sovereignty, he would have killed anyone that tried to kill him. But love overruled that sovereignty. Uh, One law uh, overruling another law with no violation of God's law. And so when Jesus said in Matthew 26, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How much more? (laughs) Does it matter? We know what one angel can do from Isaiah chapter 30, what, 38, 39. Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness And we see him, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Well, they lived that one out. The father sending his son to die for sinners does not mean that the father's love faded for the one he sent to die. On the contrary. So we read, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is the language of love. Under the father's care as a tender plant. He watched everything that was going on. He did not send Christ into the world to the virgin birth and say, well, okay, I'll check back into you when it's time for public ministry. The father saw his son, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Thrice during his humanity, as Christ walked, three times the Father made it clear that the Son was before him as a tender plant. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17.5, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. John chapter 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. A tender plant in his care. They were never separated 
because the branch is a part of the tree. And this is the, one of the greatest metaphors for explaining to us the humanity of Jesus Christ. When we say the humanity, we don't mean that he worked in soup kitchens. We mean God became a human without giving up being God. His deity remained and his sovereignty was restrained. And he lived in the spirit as a perfect Adam, as Adam should have lived. And tragically, it was not how men saw him. And it is not how the world sees him as this tender plant before God, the Christ. This suffering servant given to mankind is the Nazarene. John, in his first letter in the fourth chapter, he writes, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And he could have put on right behind that, and nobody else. He is the Savior. There's nobody else. And he did in different ways. It would be nice if the Lord could open the sky and say, Rick, I want you to add some things to some of those verses. You've got some pretty good insights. <laughs> That's not going to happen, though. Anyway, and, and I know you're, we're glad it's not going to happen. We like it the way it is. And so do I. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, begotten. Again, what is, what is that? Christ is from eternity past. He's, no, he's, he's self-existent. And God uses the tree to kind of illustrate this for us. So you have a tree and you have a branch. In fact, what if you have a tall tree that kind of forks at the top? Which one is the branch? Which one is the trunk? What, how, how do you... I'm sure you know, uh, Boris would, could narrow that down. Insignificant to the point. The point is is that a branch from a tree is not created, it comes forth from. It's, the tree is created under God's creation, of course. But for the sake of illustration, that branch comes forth from the tree. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the tree without assuming a material form, but the Son did uh, assume a body. And so... In writing about Israel's Messiah, Isaiah has already, in his prophecies, used the, this image, Messiah, as the branch in chapter 4. In fact, that one's worth reading. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Yeah, it'll be, he'll be beautiful, but not in the eyes of the world yet, as there's no, nothing in... You know, the comeliness is not there to the world. Then Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's not a little thing that he says out of Jesse. Because that's connected to the genealogy. The rights to the throne over Israel. Of course in Revelation 22.16. We read that Jesus is the root of. Uh, well, I want to read it so I don't... Gen, uh, Revelation 22, verse 16. It's beautifully worded. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. In the churches. The places of assembly. I have to say that because there's just too many Christians that disrespect the church that was bought with the blood of Christ, and it's a reference to local assemblies. 
And hiding behind, well, I belong to the universal church, is not good enough. And so he continues to testify these things in the churches, which he named in the chapters 2 and 3, named seven of them. He continues, speaking of himself, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Because Jesus is God, he is the root of David. He's the root of life. Because... He is a man, he came as a man, he is the offspring of David. And there we see the deity and the humanity of Christ. This is deep doctrine, it is easy doctrine, and it is good. And the shoot in Isaiah 11, and the branch in Zechariah 400 years after, about 400 years after Isaiah, he continues this in Zechariah 3.8, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. And so you, it helps to understand just how God became a human. He uses the trees. Like just think of a tree and a branch that comes from that tree is every bit a part of that tree. And my son is every bit a part of me. That branch is tree, and my son is God. Uh, and it's just uh, the only begotten of the Father. Nobody else. That's what's meant by that. An extension of God without being separate from God or less than God. The servant is the only begotten son. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 9, a child is born. That is his humanity. And then in chapter 9, a son is given. That is his deity. This is the tender plant before the Lord. Uh, it's not a start when Jesus uh, came through the Virgin Mary. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, this is, again, heavy doctrine because of its importance, not because it's difficult. He says, and as a root out of dry ground, when Christ came, he owed nothing to his surroundings. Israel gave him nothing. He didn't need them, but he wanted them. Surroundings which lacked the vision to recognize that he was infinitely more than anything they'd ever come in touch with. Surroundings which made no contribution to what God wanted from them. Surroundings which refused to produce the glory of God through men. May we not be that way. If, if Christ were to appear, I, you know, I sometimes make the point, you know, there are some Christians, if Christ were pastoring a church, they'd leave that church eventually. It's a sad commentary on how sin beats us up if we're not careful. It gets the upper hand that way. Uh, if Christ were to come, would, would we recognize him? Uh, would we, would, could we make a con contribution to his ministry? The apostles did. They recognized him. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And they are clumsy with it, you know, Peter, of course, with a size nine mouth. Um, but man, you're just not going to find someone that loved Jesus more than Peter loved him. A root, when he says, as a root out of dry ground, and not in the ground, the root is out of the ground, which is pretty much, to men, lying in the pathway, something to be kicked out of the way, of no use to them. They trivialized him. And this in contrast to he being the tender plant of the Father. And they, and who put him in this hostile environment, 
Because love is brave. Love of the Father is brave to let the Son go through these things. Because God is God and He's so superior, it doesn't mean that He doesn't feel these things. It's just that those feelings don't take control. And those who have attacked Jesus through the ages have seen no beauty, no desire in Him. You think Mao Te Sung saw any beauty in Jesus as He was persecuting anybody associated with Christianity, whether it was genuine or not? He hated Christianity. So did Stalin and the rest of the Because communism is a religion. And anybody tells you it's a political entity, they don't understand that it's a religion trying to behave as a political entity, entity to be able to uh, conquer. Anyway, he has no formal comeliness. The servant has no appeal by the world's standards. Superficial glances at him causes one to miss it and to miss out. I was thinking today, I was saying, man, you know, how, how did I get saved? How, how did it happen? If, if I could just bottle it, I could get others saved. But it's very difficult. It's a supernatural event. However, God uses people to bring about these supernatural events. There's no question about that. He's not entrusted the gospel to the angels yet. It's largely the work of men. But natural men are blind to the beauty of God. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, now let's pause there, Simon a Pharisee. He should have recognized these things. Simon invited Christ over, this celebrity rabbi. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to be a celebrity rabbi, but because of what he did, he became one. In the eyes of people. Then he turned, uh, and of course, Simon, uh, here's this woman weeping over Christ, and Simon is judging the woman and judging Christ, and Christ picks up on it, and he says, he turned to the woman and said, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, so he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She saw his beauty. That he wasn't afraid of sinners. That if anyone could be high and lifted up over sinners and trample them, it was him. And he opted not to do that. His humanity was his veiled glory. She could see it. What was Simon's? I, I think Simon got saved. I think he was part of, the, of giving that account to Luke when Luke did his research. He says, yeah, he came to my house. I was all uppity about things. Because we know some of the Pharisees were saved. It's into their writing. It's in their writing. First Chronicles sixteen twenty nine. I'm not going to read it, but I'll reference it to you about the beauty of His holiness. And when we see Him, the we there to Isaiah was the Jewish people, but to the church, it's all mankind. Now you've been hearing me say that the Jews have had this mandate to reach the Gentiles, and of course they've left this unharvested crop in the field. Well, who is the greatest Old Testament example of that? Jonah. Jonah had no desire to reach the people for, for Messiah, for, I mean, for God, for Yahweh, which was what they were supposed to do, be. A blessing to all the peoples of the world since the days of Abraham. And yet look how he behaved. But at least he had the, the conversion necessary to tell us how messed up he was. Jonah says, you know, I was a racist. I was disobedient. All of the key categories I flunked as a prophet. But God in his grace reached out to me. was patient. 
And using that whole fish thing, I think, was a bit overkill. <laughs> they could have said that. It wasn't. It still didn't work. Even after the fish, and he repents, and he sees his self-worth as nothing, and he survives it, and he's sent back. And he's just got this grudge on people going to heaven. Uh, there are some people, they live with a bulldozer. that just Christians, they, you know, they, they, it's almost like they don't mind that people are going to hell. In their thinking, in their mentality. I don't know. Anyway, Isaiah, he names those who smote uh, the man of sorrows, uh, as the zealot Jews. We see him. We, the Jews, we, we did this. Zealot Jews who were incensed, incensed at being told that they slew their own Messiah. Because that's what the apostles told them. According to the scriptures, you killed him and you got the Bible that says you killed him. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter preaching, him being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's that brave love right there. He continues, Peter does, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put him to death. (laughs) I would have been screaming at them, you stupid idiots, you know. But... Peter doesn't do that. He ends up bringing a lot of them to Christ. Many of those that came to Christ that day became a problem to Paul. <laughs> it's, a real, it's real stuff dealing with sin. Uh, will there be people in heaven that you didn't like on earth? Absolutely! But it won't be that way anymore. I mean, I won't get to heaven and someone comes up to me, Hi, hey, I used to come to your church. And we won't have that conversation. Because I'll be telling them, you know, I used to like you till you said that. <laughs> then, of course, Stephen, Acts chapter 7, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. I mean, Peter, no, no one flayed them better than Stephen. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And remember, he's one of them. Well, not a Pharisee. He's a Mas- what was, we would say is a Messianic Jew. Watch out for that title. It's nothing special about, any more special about being a Messianic Jew than a, Gent, uh, than a Gentile Christian. It's really the same thing. Anyway, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Well, we don't have it on record in scripture, but it's believed King Manasseh had Isaiah killed. But we don't have to because we know that there were others that were killed. Even Jesus mentioned Zechariah killed at the altar. Anyway, he says, of whom... You have now become betrayers and murderers. Straight out. Nothing unclear about that. You murdered the Messiah. And the Bible told you you'd do this. And do you think they would go, we repent. They killed him for saying that. Well, Gentile pagans would go on to persecute the Lord's followers. Not only as Paul began to preach the gospel in Gentile territories, but even to this day. In Paul's day, they were enraged at being told that their gods were trash. Worse than trash. Paul tells us in Corinthians, they worship demons. To this day, we say this about all the false religions that are out there. You're worshiping Satan. And then, well, is it true? All of them. Useless concoctions of the Godmakers Club. And it's not, it doesn't take far. It doesn't take much research to look back and say, where does my religion come from? 
Well, we can trace ours back to Genesis. We can back it up with the prophecies. We can back it up with science. Incidentally, so I, you know, I, I try not to watch an, Christian anything's really. I do read, you know, uh, Christians that are in heaven have left some writings that I like a lot. Anyway, um, so I, but this one I took the bait. It was about it was an, a Christian astronomer giving a, a telling us about the Bethlehem, star of Bethlehem. Now I'm saying to myself, well, I know the answer to this one. And I hope he gets this right. Well, God in his mercy gave us fast forward. Because there was no way I'm going to sit through 46 minutes. Because the, the, the formal education teaches people to present 411 different wrong views than the right view. I prefer showing you the right view. Then we can get to some of the others. Well, he does. He goes through all of those. And I fast forward. And he gets it right. And so I'm happy about that. It's a miracle. You're not going to chart where the star came from. You're not going to say, oh, is this, you know, this is the one time that Jupiter, Mars, and Venus all got together in a star. You can't, it's a miracle. And it's part of the faith. The virgin birth. It's a miracle. There's no scientific explanation. There's only a spiritual explanation. Uh, why does the sun not gobble up the earth? Well, according to some, it's going to. <laughs> well, because it's a miracle. God is keeping it in place. He has he is designed and engineered these things. So, I don't know how I got onto this, but I had to get that astrology thing out of my system. So, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear, not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying, that they are not gods which are made with hands. And so there's the Gentiles doing the same thing that uh, the, the unbelieving Jews were to, to, to Stephen. They were doing it to Paul. This is how it is. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Well, he's full of beauty in the eyes of God, that tender plant. He's full of beauty in the eyes of those who are saved. And uh, it, we hopefully can find a way to be used by God to share that with lost souls. There is just, it is just, a, if you've ever witnessed to someone and led them to Christ, is there a greater feeling? When Jesus said to his disciples, I have meat to eat you know nothing about. He's talking about leading someone into the kingdom. And it was that woman at the well. And they were like, who gave you something to eat? <laughs> totally missed it, but they got it all later. Verse, and so that's us, right? At, at first, we miss a lot of things. And then as we grow and mature in Christ, we start picking up a lot of things. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. That English word despised, is it not a perfect word as words go for hatred? Because that's what it is. He was despised. Why? And by who? By you? Are you kidding me? Defective people despising perfect Savior? You got the gall. The gall. Somebody will poke you in the eyes like Mo. But his truths and his holiness disturbed the devils in them, and it does to this day. Hebrews chapter 12, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
Yeah, we're not, we're, not, um, we're not celebrating the loss of any soul. We're working hard to save them, I don't, regardless of how far gone they are. I think it's one of the reasons why so many Christians love ama- the song Amazing Grace. Because when you look at the life of John Newton, his brother Fig wrote the book. <laughs> That's really goofy, I know. I, can never, I never think of John Newton without thinking of Fig Newtons. Anyhow, uh, John Newton, back to the serious part of, of the song. I mean, you look at his life and what a reprobate he was, how depraved he was. And yet he becomes this powerful preacher and writes Amazing Grace. And we look at that and we say, wow, that is a, a, a testimony outside of Scripture, but because of Scripture, that if it's so with him, it could be so with people I love too. No matter how far out there they are, God can bring them in. A man of sorrows. Well, sorrow is universal. Not all men are great. Not all men have fame or money or wealth or happiness. But all of us know sorrow. And uh, we can identify with this. But his sorrows, of course, run deeper than all the men of history put together. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. I think that the Jehovah Witnesses have a big problem with that one. Uh, I thought you said Jesus wasn't God. In the beginning, God created. Uh, John says here that nothing was made without him. He's the maker, and it's backed up in Hebrews and Colossians also. Well, when God made things, it was all good. God created a perfect environment for beings who had free will to choose right and wrong. In Genesis 1-3, Then God saw everything that he made was indeed very good. That was the sixth day. But sin cursed it all in two bites. Two bites and it was all gone. Sorrow was born and injected into the human experience. Acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, when, when you're suffering, when I'm suffering like everybody else, we want God to do something to stop the suffering. And many times he does not. But we always know that he gets it. And if he decides to leave it on us, it's worth plowing through, as crushing as it may be. As I know, it's hard to hear when it's your turn. Um, I, I find I can get little things can make me feel... <clears throat> anyway, acquainted with grief. So the words from the cross, the life of Joseph, the life of Job, the life of Jeremiah. Again, the alliteration makes it very easy. Uh, Joseph suffered for upholding his doctrine. Job was minding his business and was targeted. Jeremiah was preaching the word and was persecuted. And none of them became apostates. None of them walked away from God. They continued to do their duty. They didn't like it, but they did They did it nonetheless. And they, they did it gloriously. And so this, these things teach us that there are higher things in this life than relief from suffering. I don't like that either. But it is a fact, and you can't escape it. John Bunyan, in Pilgrim's Progress, he's, he's in this one, he's in dialogue at this one scene with Satan. In the end, uh, well, he, he refutes Satan, he, 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 you know, in the debate, and then Satan attacks him because he can't beat him in the argument. And Bunyan, Bunyan suffered in, in that Bedford prison. You know, he just suffered a lot. And P- 
Pilgrim's Progress is remarkable work. Anyway, he says, in answering Satan, when Satan says, well, if God loves you, then why are all this suffering in your life, and his servants and all this and that? He could have just said, yeah, because of you. But he, Bunyan writes about God, his forbearing at present to deliver them is on purpose to try their love, whether they will cleave to him to the end or not. Well, that's Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Persecution, famine, nakedness, perilous sword. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. None of them. So acquainted with sorrow and grief, uh, things weighed heavy on the heart of the Son of God in this life. Uh, when he's at the grave of Lazarus, it tells us that he groaned. He, from, you know, the, the grieving of the people affected him. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Well, they looked the other way, didn't they? And people still do that. You can go in certain circles and say, hey, let's talk about Jesus. And they'll want to change the subject. Or get rid of you. They want to look the other way. They want to hide their faces from him. Man can't hide from God. One of the first lessons of, of a sinner is Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden. Oh yeah, God was not going to find them. Of course he found them. And he even puts it in a language that we understand his heart was broken. Adam, where are you? He wanted to hear Adam say it. He knew where Adam was. Well, once they understood that Jesus was not impressed with their vain religion, they turned on him. John's Gospel, chapter 1, John the Apostle, uh, you know, these men loved Christ so much. Long after he had ascended to heaven, it never faded. And it shows up in their writings, and you can hear it in his voice. You can hear it when they say, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon calls out the whole family. Simon must have sided with his boy, else they would have shielded him from that, because they were notorious for shielding names when, when necessary. If, you, if you're familiar with how the Gospels are, you read them enough, you come, it glares at you off the pages. He writes here, he was in the world about Jesus, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Why not? What is your problem? Well, if I, I remember, well, I was once a, a, not a follower of Christ. So I have to tone down the zeal a little bit without losing any of the passion to, be, uh, to, to uphold the truths of Scripture. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The opposite of what he was worth, he did not get. And some on earth stood right next to him. Close enough to see his eyelashes. And still, they went to hell. Yeah, of course, Judas, Caiaphas, Ananias. Where are those guys now? Well, there were others that did not despise him. This is in Scripture, this section, he was despised and we did not. So it, it moves from the past tense and it, it flows as, as it reads uh, as though it's, it's already happened. And in Bible hermeneutics, which is really another way for just saying reading the Bible with logic, is uh, the prophetic perfect. Um, I don't know how they come up with these things. I guess they look on a list and say, hmm. It's like when they named, when they named the orange. 
they saw an orange. That's orange. And then said, someone brought them a carrot. What's this one called? <laughs> the good name's already taken. We should have named that one the orange. All right. I, it's funny. Coming back to this. How come the lemon's not called the yellow? You see, these kind of inconsistencies, they bother me. Uh, it's just, some fruit should be called after its colors. A lot of them. Anyway, well, blueberries, they got that one. They did good on that one. Uh, where are we? Here we go. Uh, so, it, the unbeliever, and I'm almost done. We'll finish here at verse 3. Did you really think we'd get to verse 6? <laughs> the unbeliever can praise God as creator in the sense of applauding him. You hear them say, boy, you know, the creator, you know, and it's just, they cannot praise him as savior. And that's a deal breaker. This is one of the reasons why we ask those who have not given their lives to Christ to abstain from the communion table. You can acknowledge a creator, but are you embraced by the Savior? It means everything. Our salvation does not mean something to us. It means everything to us. When, when, when Paul and Moses said that they would die for the Jewish people, first off, they weren't good enough. So that wouldn't work. And, and secondly, you, you look at that and you say, boy, I wonder how serious they, would, they were about that. Because I can't imagine, can you imagine, well, maybe for a child, your child, you, can, you would offer that to God. It wouldn't work, but I could, you could understand the sentiment there of just how uh, the Savior is, our salvation is such a high and special thing. It is true that the unconverted can have a lot of fun. They can out-fun us. One thing about our teen studies, we try to communicate to them, we're not trying to out-fun the world. We're trying to bring you Christ. And we want a little fun to be a part of that. But we can't outdo the world. They'll always be able to minister to your flesh at a faster rate than any good church can minister to your flesh. And we expect you to, to understand these things. The world can sing songs of gladness. They have a lot of happy songs. They can get emotional in their songs. Robert Murray McShane was a young pastor a few hundred years ago. Died, I think he was 28 when he died. And if you can get his writings, I think you, you would in, enjoy them. He goes pretty deep. He says this, but here lies the difference between the world's fun and, and the Christian's life. They can be glad and merry only when God is not in all of their thoughts, only when the veil of oblivion is cast over the realities of death and judgment. Sure, the world can have a lot of fun till you bring up their sin and their doom. Now, all of a sudden, it's not fun, so they look the other way. They won't have any of that. So I reread verse, 50, uh, verse 3, and then we'll, we'll pray. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So much for self-esteem. I'd rather esteem the, the Christ and let him do the rest. Cast your care upon him, for he cares upon you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
in due time and the right way. Let's pray. Our Father, just amazing that you would share these things with us, especially some 700 years before they even took place, and then to fulfill them, and so much more. We are very grateful for these things. May, may hearing and considering these things make us better servants. May you get us home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.